We're going to continue in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you have a Bible in some form, you can open it there, and then there should be an outline in your bulletin and printed messages. Uh, They're kind of blue this week, I think, uh, are at both exits, and if you didn't get one, feel free to grab one now if you'd like or get it later. As always, there's far more verses I put in there than I have time to read during the sermon, and uh, I put them there so that you can go over them yourself and look them up and try to make sure that what I'm saying I'm not making up, that it's coming out of God's Word. My aim every Sunday is just to explain and apply God's Word as best I'm able, and so um, I trust that those are of help to you. And... As always, they're always on the internet. Uh, We're in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 8, where Paul says, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. There was an article, a disturbing article in Reader's Digest this past year called The Big One, and it warned that an overdue major earthquake along the northwest coast of the United States could trigger a massive tsunami that would wipe out everything along the coast from as far north as Vancouver, Washington, down to mid-California there to Mendocino or thereabouts. The article said that it would be the worst natural disaster ever to hit the continental United States, far worse than Katrina or any of the other uh, major disasters that we have seen. In spite of that warning of the article I've watched in the paper and news, news things I read, I have not seen a hint of anyone who is moving away from the area, who is making preparations for this major catastrophe, I've not read of any cities that are trying to, you know, do things to uh, prepare for that. And then I started thinking, would I do anything different if I lived there? You know, if I were living in that area, would I make preparations? And I thought, well, probably not, because relocating to a different area would just be a major hassle. You'd have to quit your job, find a new job, sell your house, buy a new house, all the hassles of moving, finding new friends, all of that sort of thing. And that would all be for an uncertain event. 
But what if, what if the predicted event was absolutely certain? Well, we all know scientists cannot be absolutely certain in predicting those things, can they? Uh, and so that sort of, well, it may or may not happen element, I think makes us kind of skeptical about heeding those warnings if we're the ones that are in the path of such uh, potential destruction. Most of us probably would just rather take our chances rather than go through all the hassle for a predicted catastrophe. I wonder, maybe that's why people ignore God's warnings about judgment to come. You know, the Bible predicts it. It repeatedly warns that God's coming judgment is not just probable. It's not even highly probable. It is 100% certain that God will judge the world. Uh, Paul told the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17.31, he said, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And most people shrug that off. They figure, well, you know, I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a rapist, so I guess it'll go okay with me. Or maybe they just figure, you know, nothing's really going to happen. And so they don't get ready for that day. Now, Paul, in the text we covered last week, has just dealt with the question of what about our loved ones who die before the Lord comes back? Uh, What will happen to them in that great day of his second coming? And Paul has shown that they actually will, just an instant before, I'm sure, but they will precede those who are still living when the Lord comes. And um, he wants us to be informed about that and to be comforted Uh, so that we won't grieve as the world grieves uh, when we lose loved ones in the Lord. Now he's turning to the matter of what he calls times and epics, and specifically the time that he calls in verse 2, the day of the Lord. Uh, We don't know exactly what question the Thessalonians had asked about the day of the Lord, Uh, Many commentators think they were asking, when will it be? And that's perhaps likely. Or uh, one, a man named Jeffrey Wyma, says that perhaps they were worried that they were not spiritually or morally worthy to meet the Lord on the day of his coming. Um, That scholar, Jeffrey Wyma, summarizes verses 1 through 11 nicely. Uh, He says this, Paul responds to their anxiety by reassuring them that they need not fear the day of the Lord. That's verses 1 through 3. He then provides two supporting grounds for his claim. First, their present status as sons of light and sons of day. That's in verses 4 and 5. Second, their past election by God to obtain salvation and eternal life. That's verses 9 and 10. And then sandwiched in between these two grounds is an appeal to live vigilantly as those who belong to the day, verses 6 through 8. And then the discussion concludes with an exhortation. Now this morning we need to, just for sake of time, limit ourselves to verses 1 through 8. And I want to bring out four truths that are in these verses that apply to us. The first one is that the day of the Lord is certainly coming 
or God's word is not true. Those are the only options. Uh, That phrase, the day of the Lord, is repeated often in the Old Testament. The earliest chronologically is in Amos 5, 18 to 20, but there are many other references. It occurs four times in the New Testament, including twice in the Thessalonian letters here, and we'll see it again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, it also goes under other names. Sometimes it is called that day, uh, sometimes the day, or the day of God. Uh, it is called the day of Christ, or the day of Christ Jesus, or the day of either our or the Lord Jesus, or the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, twice in Revelation, once in chapter 6 and another time in chapter 16. Chapter 6, it's called the great day of their wrath. And there refers to God and the Lamb. And then in chapter 16, the great day of God the Almighty. Um, the, The meaning of the day, the significance of it is two things. It is God's intervention in history uh, for judgment on his enemies. And as that first reference in Amos shows, it can be those who claim to be God's people but are not really God's people because Amos says, you're all hoping for the day of the Lord. And then he turns it on him and says, that's going to be a day of gloom for a lot of you because they were not following the Lord. Or it can be a day of It it also will be a day of deliverance and blessing for God's people, and uh, many times we see that in Scripture. Sometimes these um, cataclysmic days of judgment found a partial fulfillment when Israel's enemies were wiped out. Uh, That was a temporary or initial down payment, so to speak, on the day. But um, all those events pointed ahead to the first coming of Christ, that's uh, part of the day of the Lord there. But then the ultimate culmination of the day will be his second coming. When we go over, as we'll look at in a few weeks, to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul shows that the day of the Lord is the time when Christ comes and will be gathered together to be with him, Uh, It will be preceded by, Paul says, a widespread apostasy and then the revealing of the Antichrist, whom Paul calls there the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And so, as I understand it, the final day of the Lord, the culmination of all of them together, will be uh, the time of the great tribulation and then concluding when Jesus Christ comes back again. Now, Paul says that when he was with them, he implies that when he was with them in verse 1, he had taught them all of this. It's amazing what Paul had taught them in the short time he was with them. But he says, I don't need to write you about that uh, because they were clear on that. And so he uh, writes to them about some other matters that they were wondering about. But my point here is simply this. Since this concept is so frequent in the Bible, I mean, it's not just one little verse we have to hang on to. It's repeated over and over and over and over again. Uh, It's either going to happen or God's word is not true. And those are the only two options. 
Now, there are those skeptics who probably say, well, it hasn't happened in thousands of years. You read in the Psalms, and the psalmist was crying out for God to come and judge the wicked. It hadn't happened. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus said he'd come back. It's been 2,000 years. It hasn't happened. And so they shrug it off. But in doing so, they're shrugging off many, many, many already fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. And so you have to just say the whole Bible is false to shrug off the fact that Jesus is coming. The Apostle Peter anticipated scoffers like that. In Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, he says, Know this first of all, in the last days, we, the time from when Christ ascended till when he comes are the last days, Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. That's the problem. The mockers want to follow their own lusts. And saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. That's Genesis 6 and 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So if you're ever tempted to doubt, well, the day of the Lord, yeah, yeah, sure, you know. It hasn't come in 2,000 years. It's not coming. Uh, Remember the words of Peter. uh, Because you either have to throw out your Bible completely or acknowledge that day will certainly come. A second truth here then to note is that the day of the Lord is going to be sudden and unexpected and inescapable for those people who are in spiritual darkness. That's what Paul is saying in verses 2 and 3. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Those are chilling words, aren't they? They will not escape. Now, whenever this idea of God's intervening in judgment comes up, the first question people always want to ask is, well, when? When is it going to happen? Uh, the disciples asked that. Uh, in Mark thirteen four. they came up to Jesus in that last week before he was crucified when he was on the Mount of Olives and said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. And Jesus then proceeds in that Olivet Discourse to give them a number of signs to look for before he comes. Some of those signs were fulfilled again in an initial down payment of his judgment in A.D. 70. You'll remember Titus came in with the Roman army, totally devastated Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, slaughtered off a million Jews. It was a horrible down payment on judgment. Um, And then at the end of that discourse, even after giving a number of signs that would come, 
Jesus still gave the warning for his followers to be alert. At the end, he says, Mark 13, 37, What I say to you, I say to all, that includes us. Here's his word. Be on the alert. Be on the alert. Don't get sleepy. Be on the alert. And then, again, after the risen Lord um, appeared to the disciples and he's just ready to ascend, Acts 1-6, they asked the when question a time, again. Uh, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus replied in the next verse, It's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he went on to repeat the Great Commission. And so I think what he's saying is, don't start fixing dates. Instead, focus on the Great Commission. Get the gospel out to all the people who need to hear the warning about God's coming judgment if they don't repent. It's interesting that the phrase Jesus used there in Acts 1-7, the times or epics, is the same phrase in Greek that Paul uses here in verse 1. And there are many, many parallels, by the way, between uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 down through 5, 11, with the Olivet Discourse. And scholars kind of list them in columns and show the parallels. But I think it's very likely that Paul had told uh, the Thessalonians, when Jesus taught about future things, he used the analogy of a thief. And he was coming out of Matthew 24, 42 and 43. Matthew 24 is the parallel to Luke 13 on, the, I mean, Mark 13 on the Olivet Discourse. And here's what Jesus said there. Therefore, be on the alert, for you don't know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And again, that's not referring to the um, pre-trib rapture of the church. Even pre-trib rapture people agree. That's referring to the second coming. And Jesus is saying, you don't know when I'm coming. Well, It's at the end of the tribulation, isn't it? No, you don't know when I'm coming. So be alert. And so the point of the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night is it's going to be sudden and it's going to be unexpected. The analogy of the woman with labor pains that Paul uses might include some unexpectedness. You say, how so? Well, a woman generally knows nine months, you can count, but even so, when the time comes and her water breaks and she goes into serious labor, it's always kind of a, whoa, you know, it's time, it hit. And uh, I remember our our firstborn leaving, or no, it was our secondborn, leaving my bowl of Cheerios because Marla said, we got to go. And I just went, oh, okay. So my cereal got soggy and we packed up and dropped our first daughter off and headed to the hospital and uh, had our second daughter. So there's a sudden, certain unexpectedness, but I think the main point of the woman with child is this, it's inescapable. It's inescapable, and 
Paul was writing in a day when many women lost their lives in childbirth. And so there was a certain amount of anxiety about being pregnant because you knew, uh, I can't get out of this. You know, I'm pregnant and at some point I'm going to have labor pains and I hope I make it, but many women did not. But the point is, once you're pregnant, labor pains are inescapable. They're going to happen. And then Paul says people are going to be sitting around saying peace and safety when destruction comes on them suddenly. He may be referring back to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both of whom um, condemned the false prophets of their day because they were saying to people, peace, peace. And the prophet says, but there is no peace because they were not confronting people with their sins that God was going to judge. Uh, One scholar, the one I referred to earlier, um, Jeffrey Wyma, says that there was a popular slogan uh, that the Roman Empire um, put out for propaganda. You know how politicians do that, their slogans. And it was peace and safety. Under us, you have peace and safety. That was a slogan of the Roman Empire. And uh, so again, maybe the picture here is Um, there's political peace and safety, everything's going well, Antichrist has just come as the one world ruler, there's prosperity, Uh, there's no war for a time, everything seems to just be going wonderfully, and you talk to people about judgment and they go, hey, what, me worry? Come on, you know, I'm doing okay, everything's fine, look at the world, why are you such a doomsday person? And then suddenly... Uh, God's judgment will come. It reminds me of Lot's sons-in-law. Remember, Lot warned them, and they thought he was joking. Oh, surely, you've got to be kidding. God's going to destroy Sodom? You know, we're doing well here, man. Next day, fire and brimstone from heaven. So, um, you see the same picture in Revelation 18. You know, everything is going well for worldly Babylon. I mean, there's commerce, there's trade, there's prosperity. Everything is going well. And then it says, in one hour, doom came upon her. In one hour, it emphasizes that. Um, The word destruction that Paul uses here in in, um, verse 3, and John uses the same word in Revelation, It doesn't refer to annihilation, but rather, as Leon Morris puts it, it refers to the loss of that life, which is really life. And he points out, Leon Morris does, that in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul uses the same word destruction to describe eternal banishment from the uh, presence, living presence of the Lord. And that's the meaning here in our text. And then Morris concludes, it still needs emphasis that there are no other alternatives than life with the Lord or eternal loss. One or the other is inevitable. Now, what about believers? How does the day of the Lord then affect us? Well, that's the third truth here, that the day of the Lord is an expected event for us who are children of light and day. We expect it. Verse 4 and 5, here is our text. But you, brethren, 
are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you all, uh, or for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Now, as I mentioned a week ago, I used to believe in the the pre-tribulation rapture. And so I interpreted these verses then as saying, uh, we don't need to worry about the day of the Lord because we won't be here. We'll all be taken out before the tribulation. Uh, I don't now understand it that way. I, I know good men who do, so please understand. I'm not condemning anyone who disagrees with me. But as I understand it, Paul says you're going to be in that day, but it's not going to take you unawares because you're children of light. You are our children of uh, day. And so unlike those who are taken overtaken by the thief or unlike the woman with labor pains where it's inescapable, uh, we're going to be expecting it because we're going to be living in light of its certain uh, coming. When Paul talks about the darkness, we are not of night or darkness, he's referring to both spiritual and moral darkness. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 18 and 19, Paul mentions unbelievers. And he says they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. That's destruction if it continues eternally because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Uh, Paul uses the darkness word again in Romans chapter 1, where he talks about uh, those who knew God, but they didn't honor him as God or give thanks And as a result, Paul says, their foolish heart was darkened. And as a result, God gave them over to various lusts of their heart, to different degrading passions. And uh, their own sin became the consequence of their uh, godless behavior as the results of sin uh, came down upon them. Now, the point is, when God rescues us, through Christ, he rescues us from Satan's domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Christ's kingdom of light. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 7 through 10, Paul is exhorting to moral purity uh, us who are believers in contrast to the world. And he says this, therefore, do not be partakers with them those in darkness. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So there's this distinct contrast between unbelievers, they're characterized by spiritual and moral darkness, and believers who are called children of light and day. And the point is, as believers, we're not going to be surprised when the day of the Lord comes because we expect it. But maybe you're wondering, well then, why does Paul exhort us to go on and to be alert? And that's the final truth here, that since we know that the day of the Lord is coming, 
the Bible says we should be alert and, and sober, putting on the armor of faith and love and hope. And that's verses 6 through 8. Paul says, so then, <clears throat> here's his practical conclusion. Uh, one of them will come to another in verse 11. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So as I understand it, what Paul is saying, same thing he said there in that Ephesians 5 text, is this. You are light. Live like it. Your position in the Lord is you're now a child of of light and a child of day, and I take those phrases to be synonymous. Uh, That's our, our position. Now we have to live like it. And many, many times the Bible has the same exhortation. All of Ephesians 1 through 3 tells of our position in Christ. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And Paul outlines what that means to uh, live as a a person who is in Christ. And so our, our position, Paul here says, don't be sleepy. Don't be in the dark. Be alert. Be sober. Put on the breastplate of faith and love in your helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, when Paul refers to others, don't sleep as others do. He's referring, of course, to unbelievers They're snoozing. They're just, you know, out and oblivious to the danger that's going to be coming. Uh, They might hear somebody mention God's judgment is coming, and like Lot's sons-in-law, they laugh it off, or they kind of roll their eyes and think, what is this guy living in the dark ages? Judgment? Come on, you know? You, You believe in that myth of Noah's flood? You believe in that myth of God raining fire down on Sodom? Oh, come now. Surely, you know, we have a new world coming and everything will be fine. And they they shrug it off. And then in verse 7, Paul's just giving an illustration that we all know. Most people, when they sleep, and this is in the day before electric lights, of course, uh, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. And Paul goes on to say, but you're not of the night. You're of the day. So he's contrasting uh, that, that condition. But the point is, those who are asleep and those who are drunk have no idea when they're in physical danger. A thief might be in their house with a club to kill them, or, or they may be in some dangerous condition out in the woods or something, and they're just too out of it with alcohol to even know that they, their lives are in danger. And so they're going to be caught by surprise when the day of the Lord comes. The Bible has a lot of different scenes of people who are asleep and oblivious to danger. Some of them are, Christ, are believers. Uh, some of them are unbelievers. One case, uh, it's kind of a gruesome story, but the story of Sisera. He was a general of Israel's opposing army, you know, of the enemy. And Israel had triumphed over him in battle through Deborah and Barak in Judges. And so he flees. And he comes to the tent of a woman named Jael, J-A-E-L. 
and she, he thinks she's a friend, but she's really on Israel's side. So she invites uh, Sisera into her tent, gives him some nice soothing milk to make him drowsy, and he goes to sleep in her lap. She grabs a tent peg and, and hammers it through his temple and literally nails him to the, to the ground and delivers Israel from this dreaded enemy. So he thought he was safe, but being asleep, he was not safe, and he never knew what hit him. And then there's the story of Samson, who is lulled to sleep in Delilah's lap. And Delilah is a deceptive woman, and she calls the Philistine warlords to come in and capture him. And at first, uh, he lies to her about the source of his strength, and he overcomes these warlords. But then... Finally, stupid Samson tells her the source of his strength. And so she cuts off his hair while he's asleep, calls the warlords, and uh, they capture him, blind him, and enslave him. Again, he should never have gone to sleep in Delilah's lap. That was stupid. Uh, Then in the New Testament, you have the disciples on the night before Jesus was crucified. And he says, please, watch with me and pray. Stay awake. And he comes back and says, they're all sleeping. He says, couldn't you even stay awake for one hour to pray with me? And, and while he's talking to them, uh, Judas and the army comes upon him and they all flee in terror. And then there's the story Jesus tells, the parable in Matthew 25 about his second coming. And in that parable, both the wise and foolish virgins go to sleep. But the point is, the wise ones went to sleep prepared. The foolish ones went to sleep unprepared. And when the bridegroom came, the wise ones were taken with him into the wedding feast. The foolish ones were shut out in the dark because they had not gotten enough oil. And Jesus then doesn't leave us in the dark about how to apply that. In Matthew 25, 13, at the end of the parable, he says this, Be on the alert, then, for you don't know the day or the hour. And that's the exact application Paul is giving here. Don't sleep. Be on the alert uh, and and be sober. When he says, having put on, that's the uh, New ASB translation in verse 8. Some versions say putting on. Uh, It can be translated either way. If it means having put on, then Paul is saying, when you got saved, you put on the breastplate of faith and love, and you put on the helmet of salvation. Now live like it. Or if it means putting on, then he's saying, uh, remain alert and sober by, again, putting on what you already are in Christ, your spiritual armor. Now, In a number of other texts, Paul uses the analogy of spiritual armor. The most well-known one, of course, is Ephesians 6, where he goes through the various pieces of the armor, and there he assigns different significance to the uh, various pieces than he does here. Uh, In Ephesians 6, for example, the breastplate is righteousness. Here the breastplate is faith and love. In both places, the helmet is salvation, but here... Paul adds the helmet of the hope of salvation, and that focuses us on the future aspect of salvation, namely, when Christ comes, 
our salvation will be forever complete. That's the idea of the hope of salvation. In both cases, Paul is drawing on, on Isaiah 59:17, And in that text, the prophet pictures God as the mighty warrior. And he says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of, excuse me, of vengeance for clothing. And he wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Now, in our text, Paul says that as believers, in Isaiah, it's God who puts the armor on. Here, as believers, we're to put the armor on, or at least to act in accordance with the armor we've put on. And he emphasizes the three virtues that he started the letter off with, uh, faith, love, and hope. He commended them in chapter 1, verse 3, for their faith, for their love, for their hope. And here he says, put those into action. Uh, John Calvin observes this. He, Paul, omits nothing of what belongs to the spiritual armor, for the man that is provided with faith, love, and hope will be found in no department unarmed. John MacArthur, in dealing with this text, uh, points out that these three virtues protect us from temptation, from the forces of darkness. He develops it. Faith, he says, is trust in God's person. And we can always trust God's person because he never changes. He always acts in accordance with his attributes. We've Watch the video in the evening where Wayne Grudem goes through the attributes of God. Uh, It's also trust in God's power. And as we know, the Lord often says, is anything too difficult for me? You know, I spoke the universe into existence. What's your problem? Uh, God is able, so we trust his power. Uh, Faith is also trust in God's promises. And that is just that there's never a time when God does not keep his word and then MacArthur points out that faith is trust in God's sovereign plan as revealed in Scripture, that God's plan will happen even as his word states. When Paul says to put on the breastplate not only of faith but love, I think he's referring to love for God and love for others, the two great commandments. We are to love God with all our heart, love our neighbor as ourself. And then hope, of course, looks to the future And the glorious promise we have that all who believe in Jesus Christ will experience all that God has prepared for them. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And then uh, MacArthur concludes, when faith is weak, love grows cold. When love grows cold, hope is lost. When hope in God's promise of future glory is weak, believers are vulnerable to temptation and sin. So in light of of the coming day of the Lord, I think we all need to do an occasional, not every day, but every once in a while, an occasional spiritual checkup where we kind of think through these issues and say, first of all, is my faith in Christ and his sacrifice for me solid. Daily am I trusting in the crucified Savior, in the truth that his blood covers all my sin, that I am who I am in Christ because of Christ, 
So faith in him. Secondly, how about my love for God? Is it really vital? Is it fresh? Or have I lost that first love as he chastises the church in Ephesus for? And then what about my love for others? Is it growing? Is it real? Or do I need to forgive someone? Do I need to restore a relationship where it's been broken or strained? And then what about my hope in Christ's coming and in the glory I will share with him someday? Am I saying, Lord Jesus, come, as the book of Revelation ends. Even so, Lord Jesus, come, is he our hope? Uh, and does that motivate me to serve and obey him? So the message is be alert, be ready, don't sleep, be sober, just be ready. Years ago, I, I worked at a swanky hotel that's right on the lakefront in downtown Chicago. It's called the Drake Hotel. Maybe some of you have been to that city, have seen it. It's an old hotel. And uh, years before I worked there, in 1959, Queen Elizabeth was scheduled to visit Chicago. So they spiffied up the waterfront for her. They painted all the trash cans and they, you know, put banners up, made the whole place just really look welcome to a queen. And they had a red carpet they were going to roll out and all of that. And so they called, the city officials called all the hotels, not knowing where she was going to stay, to make sure they were ready for the queen. And when they called the Drake, the manager of the Drake said, we are making no plans for the queen. Our rooms are always ready for royalty. Our rooms are always ready for royalty. It's a great line, isn't it? And that's how we should live in light of Christ's return. Shouldn't have to make any preparations because you're alert. You're sober. You're ready. Even so, come, Lord, maybe today, you know, you're living your life before him in the light as a child of day, and you're longing and looking for the day of the Lord. Let's pray. If you're here this morning, and what I've said doesn't make sense to you because you don't know if your sins are forgiven, you could be in big, big trouble if the Lord comes back. And the good news is this, Christ Jesus came into the world to die for sinners. And if you qualify as a sinner, we all do, flee to Christ, trust in Christ. He shed his blood to atone for the sins of the whole world, John 1.29. And whoever believes in him has eternal life. John 3.16. So put your trust in Christ and then you will be a child of day and of light and look for that day with hope, not with dread. Dear Father, I pray that none would shrug off the warning of our text that the day of the Lord is coming, that it will be inescapable for those in darkness but it will be a great day of rejoicing and joy for those who know you. And I pray that we'd all be ready. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.